There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is Ryan Fraser. This is Troy Dana. This is Gus Boyet. This is Don Hutchison. This is Jürgen Klopp, and you're listening to The Big Interview with Graham Hunter. Thank you, Jürgen. I travel to all these interviews from Barcelona, and our socios, our beloved members, keep us on the road. This independent podcast wouldn't happen without them. Please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter right now to join us, to become a socio, and to get every interview we produce without adverts and before it goes out on the main feed, plus lots of bonus content, including the chance to put questions to our guests and to me via the monthly Q&A. You will also get bonus content every month, including the audio versions of my regular columns for ESPN. So do please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter and join the club and get your family and friends to do so. Maybe even strangers in the street. Love you. Part two, he said, stealing unashamedly from John Walters, the producer of the mighty John Peel, who he named music-loving Johnny Plea. And I'm using part two to introduce part two of the Jamie Carragher interview um, that we did recently about his version of Greatest Games. Now, in it, there's a wide variety of matches, including, of course, Liverpool 3, AC Milan 3 and that penalty victory. England 4, Holland 1 in Euro 96, Barcelona 3, Manchester United 1, Liverpool 4, Barcelona 0, Manchester City 3, QPR 2. But the one we focus on hugely in this episode is the way in which England defeated Germany at 5-1 in Munich and how that related to well, what happened and what when Jamie went back to look at it, how that related to England's subsequent failure to use what was dubbed the, the golden generation to actually not only win a tournament, but even to come close to troubling the scorers at big tournaments. Jamie's extrapolation of what he learned from what is held out as England's greatest performance of the modern era <laughs> and how that's been marketed in a way that didn't represent big chunks of the game. You'll find that interesting whether you're English or not. He looks really closely at David Beckham, his role in the 1999 Champions League final. And little bits come out about how much more impressed Jamie was with David Beckham, the footballer, than many judges have been. How, although he liked Sven Joran Eriksson as a person, he didn't find him a deeply impressive England coach. He'll explain why. What comes out here hugely as well is Jamie's ability to explain what it is that he finds that causes him absolute devotion to Xavi Hernandez. Jamie's a defender, a rugged defender, somebody for whom winning was just about everything, uh, somebody who maybe started in midfield, but doesn't have a massive amount of correlation with the way that Xavi played the game. And yet for him, 
instead of choosing uh, a Maldini or a Willie Miller or a Bobby Moore or whatever you like to say, for him, there are two players in his life that stand out. One of them is an Italian defender, I'll grant you, but the other one is Xavi Hernandez. And here, Jamie brilliantly explains why. So, this is part two of Jamie Carragher talking about his book, The Greatest Games. Listen to it, enjoy it, tell people about it. Buy The Greatest Games for people in your life who, who like looking back and re-understanding matches. It's a classic book. Please also check out our new YouTube channel where you will find audio of some of our brilliant old interviews and lots of video clips from the more recent guests when we discovered what te- technology was and how to use it. Does it have batteries, lads? Look, this is the big interview. Um, You're probably listening to this at or around the festive period. Have a safe, happy, healthy time. Enjoy yourselves. We've all had to work double hard to get through 2020. It's been a brutal year. But for me, being able to do this work, to speak to these people and knowing that you're there uh, listening, sharing, sending in questions, supporting us, socios, to all of you, heartfelt thanks. Let's not go in depth as to the, you know, Scholes, Gerard Lampard, Beckham debate and why that didn't yield a trophy for England, because trophies are coming. And if you look at the way in which the, the younger footballers that have won the, the two World Cups and have been to European finals at age group levels, there's a different brand of football, a different idea. And I think that I'm, I'm uncertain if Gareth Southgate is the man who's going to take them to a trophy for other reasons but his culture change in general reflects somebody who's thought deeply about what went wrong previously but describe for the listeners who don't understand because your central point about that Bayern Munich game excuse me game in Bavaria where England beat uh, Germany 5-1 was there were things there that shouldn't um, be obscured by the five goals the fact that Michael Owen knew he could run all over them he played against Bayern Munich a couple of days earlier in the Super Cup had run past two of the defenders and scored past the, the, the goalkeeper and it was a beautiful night I remember being excited by the win there's no, no getting away from that but the loss of possession describe as a footballer who played in, in tournaments or, or sometimes if you were the 12th, 13th man you watched it the, the, the feeling of a long English season going to a tournament playing against a rival that kept the ball getting the ball back and giving it away and then what that felt like because it just must have broken the spirit never mind dented England's ability to, to play winning football I don't think I've ever enjoyed any tournament I've ever played in. And that goes back to being a kid. Uh, it was almost like you couldn't wait for it to be over. And I don't mean that we wanted to lose a game or get knocked out, but I mean, you couldn't enjoy the games, really. And, and I, you might laugh at this, but I played fullback in a game against Trinidad and Tobago. So not a huge, obviously, name and not a game or not a country who were going to dominate possession-wise as... as you're, you're maybe mentioning, but it was that stifling hot, and I was playing fullback, and I'd played centre back all season. I played fullback, different running needed in that position. I ended up getting in the ice bath at half time. Never mind the end of the game, I was in it at half time. I was that hot, and when you were playing in those type of conditions, the way we wanted to play of high intensity, maybe turnovers, win the ball back, it was it was not enjoyable. You couldn't, and I speak to other players, and, and they tell me the same really that we never actually had a game where you can actually look back and go I played in the World Cup okay we never won it but I always think about the Champions League 
You don't win the Champions League every year, but you still embrace it. You still love it. You still remember the, the stadiums you went to. But I played in two World Cups. Now, it, without blowing my own trumpet, it's, it's a big achievement to play in the World Cup and to do it twice. But when I think of my career highlights, I never think of playing in a World Cup or playing for England or the stadiums we played in. I can't ever remember enjoying the game. Really now, I don't ever like coming across as sort of making excuses because of the the lack of a winter break or the way we play football. Because there's English players who played in the Premier League who've won a World Cup. Look at the French lads in '98, certainly the Arsenal team that won the double as well uh, in that position. But with England, it was just uh, it was very difficult for me, or I found it sort of physically at the end of the season, and that that was going back sort of years before, for whatever reason, that I sometimes think, do we actually put too much into our game where it's it's like a matter of life or death, it feels at times, with sort of Liverpool, Man United, Chelsea, Arsenal, uh, and you'd never sort of rest or think about the World Cup was coming. I mean, I, I'd find that unbelievable if a player said to me, oh, no, I've got to get myself ready for the World Cup. I'd be like, for me, club football was always, and always is, the number one. And... But the only the flip side of that is you look at Spain with Madrid and Barcelona and, and how they come together and those those games with Guardiola and Mourinho where there was like it was almost like a war and they found a way to some way you know get together. Dispiriting to think back like that for an Englishman. Um, there's there's a there's a link player to another chapter that we have to speak about. Um, one of our socios has written in to ask you. Uh, no, sorry, a bet TC's five have written in to ask you. Be honest. What was your feeling? How did you react when Ole Gunnar Solskjaer scored against Bayern Munich in nineteen ninety nine, and United had had done it and, and won the treble, won a Champions League, which is Liverpool's territory. But you know, a secondary one from that is that when we sat down in his home by the lake up in Sweden and spoke to Sven Jorn Eriksson he's a great storyteller and, and you call him an unremarkable coach and you make the case well in the book which you know if people don't read My Greatest Games by Jamie Carragher they're making a mistake or buy it as a present Sven you talk about as being an interesting guy and that people liked him as an individual but an unremarkable coach when Sven was telling us his stories, and they were remarkable stories, and this is a man who'd taken in some refugees, some, I think, um, Afghan asylum seekers who had no money, no food, and he'd housed them at the bottom of his garden just because he's a good man. Astonishing thing. And in the middle of his interview, he started talking about... He was comparing Gianluca Vialli and, and particularly Roberto Mancini and, and just drooling over them as a, as a coach, as an appreciator of football. And then he said, but... They're not David Beckham. And he talked about David Beckham in a reverential style that from another grown-up man in football I haven't heard. You can appreciate him. People catalogued his, his looks, his style, his wins. People were very good at talking about his, his delivery of the ball. Sven Goran Eriksson was enthralled to him. Just thought he was one of the most amazing men he'd ever come across. And that links us forward, as does the Holly Gunnar Solskjaer cheeky question, to your appreciation, because going back to 99 and Camp Now, you've got a different view of the way in which Bayern Munich, again, funny how they come up. It's been a, it's been a bad night for the Germans and the Bavarians uh, so far. But you, you feel differently about how that game is portrayed, an unlucky Bayern Munich and, and, the, and Beckham's part in that match. 
Yes, and I actually watched that game. Would you believe in a uh, in a casino in Las Vegas? Uh, I was on holiday, and it was all over with the time zones. And I'm watching this, and I was watching it with another Liverpool player, Dominic Matteo, and uh, he was not as say uh, pumped up as as I was to see Manchester United uh, lose that game. And there was a complete contrast in emotions when uh, the final whistle was made. He just got on with the rest of his night and I was just like, felt like I wanted to go home on the next flight. But I, I watched that game and again, that's one of the perfect ones. There was a narrative. Bayern Munich are winning 1-0. They hit the post, they hit the crossbar and Man United scored two in the last minute. How have they won? The luckiest thing I've ever seen in my life. So I watched the game. Man United deserved to win that game. Uh, Bayern Munich played that game like they were playing an away game in Europe where they get the early goal and we're getting our clean sheet and that, and Man United weren't at the best but I thought the performance from David Beckham was outstanding I thought he was the best player on the pitch by a long way and again something that's never been mentioned because it's all about Solskjaer and Sheringham coming off the bench and winning the game there was no Keane in that game there was no Scholes you have to remember Beckham then went to central midfield he's still only 23 he's still a young man 23, 24, around there. And the responsibility he took in that game of taking the set pieces he normally did, but getting on the ball, demanding the ball, making passes, supporting the, uh, the front players, still getting into wide positions and making crosses. And I actually think he's one of the most underrated players of our time. And people will say, don't be so stupid. People are overblew Beckham. Well, they didn't overblow him. He got more attention because... He was. He, he looked like a, a pop star. He he went out with a pop star. He, he had this glamorous lifestyle, but his actual ability and his work rate, I think, is undermined. Where to the to the point where people always talk about Paul Scholes being amazing. I don't hear no one say nothing about Beckham. Paul Scholes was amazing, but I, I very rarely hear anyone speak about David Beckham as a player once he finished. And watching that game again, and I didn't go in with any preconceived ideas about his performance as such but when I watched the game I, I got on the phone to Gary Neville straight away and I said listen I'm not trying to sell the book here by getting Beckham in it I said but I need to speak to David Beckham because I've never heard anyone really speak about his performance really and how good it was and yes Man United weren't at their best but if I'd, I'd, I'd urge anyone who disagrees with me to go back and watch the game again and how many half chances United are getting and getting. And you don't. we shouldn't forget as well, the goals they score, they're not great goals. They're, they're great chances. I mean, it'd be difficult for Sheringham to miss. It'd be difficult for Solskjaer. I know he only sticks the boot out, but he's right in front of goal. So when we talk about Bayern Munich hitting the post and hitting the crossbar, they, that comes from an overhead kick. And it comes from Mehmet Schultz and a chip Schmeichel from the edge of the box. So they would have been great goals. They weren't efforts where you should say he should have scored. It was a great chance. No, it was a great ability that almost got them a goal. Whereas the difference with United was they had big chances late in that game, really. And a metric we use now, maybe a bit too statistical for some people, but is expected goals that we look at now. And, and some people get it, some people don't. So that, that's fine, but... Man United in that game, when the game was analysed in this day and age, if you like, with that tool, Man United were streets ahead of Bayern Munich within that game. So it almost 
it was nice for something else to prove my point because even when I say it to people, people just think, no, I can't understand it. So please watch the game. The one, the one, the guy who, in our first chat um, for the podcast, you just had dinner with Alec Ferguson. It was hands across the divide. And it was interesting to hear the respect he had for you, not necessarily what you had for him, but I, I like that. I warm to that, but you, you're quoting... Exactly what Alex Ferguson has always said about the game. In retrospect, once the glory dies down and the treble dies down and he says to Steve McLaren, never mind extra time, we're winning this now and blah, blah, blah. He has perpetually said, by a minute, we're too conservative to try to shut up shop. We deserve to win. We play better. So your eyes are telling the same story as Fergie has retrospectively. And it's also, you point out that, you know, there's a narrative that there was a late scramble, throwing of the dice, Speckham went right, the ball came in and, and you don't even really buy into that narrative. And uh, people should go and read this chapter. Sorry about the casino experience. I hope you bet on black, not red. Red that night. Um, I got to ask you a personal one, uh, Jamie, because Neil and I and Martin have published our own books. What was the match that didn't get in? There must have been two or three. There, were, there was one, and the reason. Basically, the book is. I wanted to start at my childhood. And I wanted to finish as, as recent as possible. So, we, you know, so the, the book felt, you know, from from now as well. And I just didn't want it to be all old games. And I wanted it to be games that I'd either played in, which was the couple, or I'd, I'd watched as a pundit, or I'd, I'd, I'd watched as a fan. I didn't want to do England 1966 World Cup final, Brazil 70, uh, maybe a, a game from Cruyff in the 70s. I wanted to sort of, you know, games that I could remember. And the one that, or the one team that isn't really in there is AC Milan from uh, Saki Capello. And because the games we chose, we, we chose them for lots of different reasons. There's more Liverpool games than others because I think more Liverpool fans are possibly going to buy the book and, and that's where I've got a greater uh, idea of, of games, really. And almost, I wanted to cover a lot of styles of football in there almost going from sort of that mid-80s football to gegging pressing now with Klopp. That's why Guardiola had to be in there, his team, and that football uh, at Wembley. Obviously, Man United are in there, that 4-4-2, wingers, Ferguson taking chances. You know, even Mancini's game in there, uh, Man City game, is, is these are all iconic games, but when I watched that game back, it brought me back to how that City team played. I almost forgot and that really narrow wide players, David Silva and Nasri with two strikers and almost 4-2-2-2 in some ways with no great width in the team. But the one, the one, one that we, we didn't get in that I wanted to get in was was a Saki stroke pad. That Milan team for me and the Guardiola-Barcelona team are the, the two teams that for me, in my era or my recollection of change football, and it almost feels like there's so many links. You know, Jürgen Klopp mentions Saki in the book. Uh, we don't speak to Guardiola, but you've got Xavi in the book. And a lot of it's going back to sort of Cruyff and, and Rhenish Mikkels. And it's just a great line, really, through the book. And it all feels like they connect. And possibly the one man we haven't got in there is Arrigo Saki. And that was the one. It was just, we were getting to the stage where... I couldn't put one of his games against an English team, so I was thinking, how am I going to get the interviews? How am I going to speak to people? Uh, and I think the one is, I mean, the one that I always remember is the European Cup final in 89 at uh, 
the new camp, wasn't it? Against Stour Bucharest. And it was, uh, you know, 4-0. I think Van Basten gets two. Ruud Hullick gets two. But that was the one that we just... We were sort of running out of time. And it was like... We're maybe going to have to revisit that. So certainly uh, AC Milan of the late 80s, early 90s. I'm here to tell you about another podcast. Yes, we believe in biodiversity. It's from the makers of The Big Interview and it's called Between the Lines, the stories behind great sports writing. Every episode takes a classic sports book or outstanding piece of sports writing and examines how the writer crafted their story. This is a weekly show, and the series so far has featured documentaries on the miracle of Castel di Sangro and Andrea Perlo's autobiography, I Think, Therefore I Play. There's also interviews with writers like Henry Winter, Simon Cooper, Andy Mitten, and David Goldblatt. Here's Raf Honigstein with his brilliant piece focusing on Erling Haaland signing for Borussia Dortmund instead of fill-in-the-blank, but we know it's Manchester United. A transfer story is essentially is a happy story. Three parties got what they wanted. Everyone thought that they had done great work and had got a great deal out of it. Dortmund were proud of their achievement of getting this guy. Haaland, I think, was really, really happy with having made this decision. I think the agent obviously wanted to show that why this was the right decision and, and why others were wrong to sort of dismiss the reasons why they went, etc. So as, as much as it is a detective work, it's not solving a murder case. You are dealing with something that is actually quite positive and that people are, to an extent, quite happy to talk about. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This is not necessarily a, a, a one-word answer or a long answer, but Bet365, I've asked us to ask you, if Liverpool played Barcelona on that night, the 4-0 night, 100 times, how often would they have won 4-0? You know what? I think it'd be more than what you'd think, really. I know, I know it's a freak. It'd be bad that Barcelona 4-0, but it wasn't even the Liverpool's best team. I think we have to remember that. There was no Salah. No Salah. No Firmino. No yeah, and it was just... I, ju- I just think, honestly, I, I just think the combination of Klopp, the crowd, and that team's almost in the middle. And I'm not trying to take credit away from the players because it was amazing. But I just think there's a concoction there of European nights, Anfield, and Jürgen Klopp's connection. And it's just, what happens in the middle is the game. And it's just, I'm not saying it was meant to happen, but it was just, I just look at that and... I remember being at the side of the pitch when Barcelona finished the warm-up. And my only hope for that game was Barcelona think the game's won. So I was doing some TV work and I was at the, the Anfield Road end, so where the Barcelona fans were, and I was watching them warm-up. OK, they're doing the warm-up. You know, I don't, I'm not seeing nothing out the ordinary. And then the Liverpool players went in. There's a big roar. 
And then I see Messi get the players in a huddle and my heart sank. I thought, oh, they, they, know, how, they know how important it is, but they, they, these, it happened to them before. Correct, it happened to them. They'd been pumped in Turin, they were pumped in Rome, having been 4-1 up and they lose 3-0. It was in their, there was a stone in their shoe already, you're right. And I just felt, maybe this is not the night this is going to happen, really. And then, when we analysed the game and looked at it again, obviously, what do you want? An early goal. They get the early goal. But when you look at the goal, some of the things the Barcelona players did in that lead up to that goal, I couldn't believe it. Jordi Alba. I mean, I think Liverpool have a corner. The corner gets cleared and Jordi Alba goes chasing the board. It's only going to go back to the Liverpool goalkeeper. And then before you know it, Liverpool have recycled the ball. They've knocked a long ball to the left-back position. Jordi Alba does a bad header. The reason he does the poor header is because he's running back to position. So he's actually running backwards trying to head a ball instead of actually running onto it and heading it away. And just those little moments Liverpool took, obviously, advantage of it. And, and to be honest, I think it was almost like an, an Istanbul moment where I always think that when the AC Milan players, they're probably thinking, something's happened that quickly. They haven't even had time to think. And I sometimes think about that with the Barcelona game where in that second half, things happen that quickly. It was almost like Barcelona were in a trance and could not believe what was happening. It just like bumped before, you know, the game's finished and they're out. And it's one of them, how's that happened? How has that happened? And yes, of course, more often than not, you're not going to be the team of that quality 4-0. But I just... I don't know, I just think there's something with with Europe and, and Klopp's energy and personality. And I, and I just think, with Klopp's personality, I just think those type of events are more likely to happen than maybe with other managers. Because maybe there are other managers who have different strengths as managers, but his is actually almost making people believe something's going to happen and never... He, it's okay, we can all say, never give up, work hard. These are just words and, you know, cliches. But when, when, when you actually believe it when someone says it, you know, and I think that's the big thing. And I think Jürgen Klopp's team talk before that game is, again, spoken about a lot, is that he said, I most, he said, if this was another set of players in front of me, I don't think we could win. He said, but I think you can win. Now, of course, he'd have probably said that to us, another set of players in that position. But those players believed it when he said it. You know, you know, so straight away they feel ten foot tall, it doesn't matter it's Barcelona, it's Messi. And I just think there was a not that it was always going to happen, of course it wasn't, but I just think there was just so many things aligning together, uh, really, that uh, made it more likely than what you'd expect. Well people need to know that Bantam Press is um the greatest games book um, written by Jamie Carragher that what you've just explained there beautifully um, hackles rising for me because that's one of the most extraordinary pair of matches being at Camp Nou Anfield that I've seen in, in decades there's a link there we won't go into it now but there's a link there in what you've talked about in terms of managing a situation or managing a lead that links back to 1989 and what John Aldridge told you about the Arsenal game and preconceptions and what decisions do you make if you've got a perceived advantage that's why the book uh, punches well above its weight I want to close Jamie because I promised you it'd be about an hour 
with what I hope is a labour of love for you, because I know that um, one of the things you did is that you went and spoke to you, you spoke to Xavi Hernandez in Qatar, or you, you got him on the phone about about that Wembley game, and you and I um, were last I think together in, in Spain's training camp in Madrid Las Rosas, where you sat down and interviewed Xavi while Pepirina bombarded us with Italian swear words and, and burst in and took over the, but. Rather than describing Xavi as a player, why is it that he lights your candle? Because in my view, and I share it, so, but in my view, he's the player that, that, that probably most makes you excited about a brand of football that we maybe haven't seen in our island so often. He's the guy who maybe converts you back into being the fan that you were at nine, um, travelling to Bavaria to watch Everton. We know what he does, but why is it? Why why isn't it Parisi for you or Maldini for you or or why isn't it somebody who maybe shared more of the? I know you started in midfield, but just my my question is why, why? Well, Xavi was a player who I used to watch a lot of Spanish football when I was a younger player, and and it wasn't when Barcelona were doing well. It was around the time of you know Rafa's uh, Valencia. Uh, Deportivo La Coruña was, was the manager Irueta <laughs> Javier Irueta spot on spot on I used to watch them teams and they were doing really well and you know Valeron Jalmina in there Tristan all these players and there was obviously you know Baraka and Elbelder and uh, Vicente uh, in those teams and actually John Carew I think at the top end of the pitch for Valencia but I think it was but Barcelona weren't doing that well I think it was at a time where Xavi was getting a little bit of criticism from Barcelona, uh, maybe, you know, the supporters. But so I used to watch them a lot and I'd be like, I love this player. And I always remember him playing for, I think it was the, I don't know if it was England B or England under-21s played Spain. And I remember, I think think it may have been at West Brom's ground or Birmingham or something like that. And I I just love the player. And I used to always speak to the Spanish lads about him. And I always find, and I found this going to England training is, everyone's a good player at international level, that's why you're there. But what defines, I feel, world-class players is players who stand out in that environment. So Stevie Gerrard would stand out at England training, Rio Ferdinand, John Terry, Paul Scholes, so those be four or five. But the Spanish lads would always come back to me and I'd be saying, what's Xavi like in training? What's it? And he was a level above World Cup winners, you know. And... The the thing, I mean, you mentioned Baresi before. I, I'd say my two favourites are Baresi and Xavi, uh, because it's it's the brain, really. The thing that I love about Baresi is he's only five foot nine. He's not six foot three and dominating in the air and and, and, and quicker and stronger than everyone. to get to the level he's, he's had to think. And the same with Xavi in that. He's slow, he, he can't really... I mean, no, he's not slow, but he, he's not an... You, you don't look at him and think athlete, but he's quick across, you know, across the ground, the first sort of five, ten yards, but it's the brain. I mean, it's... The thing I loved about Xavi, I would say, was nobody in the world who ever played against Xavi could stop him doing what he wanted to do. Yeah. You couldn't... So yeah. it was almost like, okay, how... how no one could go and get the ball off him, so you couldn't stop Xavi running a game. And that was his job. So how good is that, that nobody can actually stop you doing what you want to do? It's almost okay. we have to accept that's going to happen. What can we do about another area of the pitch? So, And 
he'd be getting like he'd be mad at the match in the World Cup final he'd be the, the best player in every tournament he played he'd be mad at the match in the Champions League finals and and it was almost like I loved Iniesta don't get me wrong but it was almost like Xavi was in charge of the team and this team was about you know being on the ball and keeping possession of course and you can say Piol's a leader but in terms of this team is about keep making passes until the opener and it was like I'm in charge of this and I always felt Beresi that Milan team was maybe slightly different it wasn't as possession based it was maybe the best defensive unit you've ever seen the organisation of pushing up and being compact catching people off offside it was almost like Beresi told everyone else what they had to do and I always felt that was with Xavi so that's why if if I'm ever asked who are my favourite two people in football, yes, you can say Messi's the best player I've ever seen. That, that's that's normal, that's not original. But the ones that get my juices flowing are the ones who haven't, not so much got natural ability, though those two players have got unbelievable ability, but they haven't got the full package. But so but the brain is is just on another level to other footballers. And that's why I'm fascinated to see if he well he will he's in coaching now. I'm sure he'll end up being the Barcelona manager. But when you speak to him, he's so uh not confidence the wrong way, but is he believes so much in his idea and the Barcelona idea and how it's gonna work and what it, you have to do that I I just think it's gonna be fascinating. <coughs> To see how he uh, not just does a Barcelona because I'm, I'm sure he'll be Barcelona coach, but I'm sure that only last three or four years. That's just the nature of Barcelona. Uh, but what he does and where he goes and what he gets involved in, because I just think uh, the great minds in football, you always want them involved in the game, and uh, they're certainly two. And I mean, I should mention I wanted to speak about Saka. It'd be great to get Berezi, but one of the highlights for me is I'm a footballer. I've played against Xavi in big games. But there's still footballers you look up to, even though you're, you're at the top of your game. And Xavi is one of them. I'm still in awe of him. And the other one was Berezi. Obviously, never played against him. But I, uh, I took my son to uh, a Milan derby. So the my birthday is the 28th of January. So it's normally FA Cup weekend in England, fourth round. Always that weekend. So I wasn't doing a game for Sky. So the Milan derby's on. I'll take my son to the Milan derby. Got in touch with AC Milan. Absolutely looked after me. Fabulously well considering what had happened in 2005 uh, But we get sat in almost executive seats And we're sat next to Franco Beresi And I'm like, I can't believe I'm, I'm saying to my son, this is Franco Beresi He's saying, who's that? Well I said, you see that big banner behind the goal And I'm, talk- I'm not talking a banner I'm talking the whole of the stand was covered With this thing for Franco Beresi No other player And... I'm like, that's him. The fellow you're sitting next to, that's him there. So that's how good he was. So that's why I, I love those type of players, really. The ones who, who have to or need the brain to get them to the absolute elite. Well, James was a lucky boy that day. Uh, good luck to James. I think at, at Wigan, if I'm not wrong. Am I right? Yes, yeah, he's at Wigan. He's doing okay. Then, um, that, as I anticipated it being, is, is just... A pure adrenaline, pure endorphins, a pure pleasure. You you have a great privilege to be able to have played at your level, won things, and and not just to continue in the game, but to be able to describe it and, and talk with the the clarity and the intelligence plus the passion um, that you do, Jamie. You've been given a gift. 
Um, thank you for sharing it uh, with us. Um, I'm going to say it again, and I think we've plugged a book in 106, 107 interviews. I think we've plugged a book three, four times. So when I say that this is a really substantial, really interesting, thought-provoking read, it's the truth, The Greatest Games by Jamie. Listen, absolutely phenomenal. People are going to love this. Listen, thank you for being so generous with us and taking the time, Jamie. Uh, the big interview to Jamie Carragher, over and out. Thanks, Graham. Thank you for listening to The Big Interview. It's produced by me, which sounds egotistical, but it's also true. Graham Hunter and Backpage. Our music is by Beer Jacket, who else? Editing by Charlie McGarry. Thank you to our hosts at Acast and our loyal sponsors at Bet365. We're also supported by our socios. Find out how to become a socio, how to support us at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Here endeth the lesson.